Okay, believe it or not, in our study over the Gospel of Mark, this is our 50th week. This is sermon number 50 in, in Mark's Gospel. There's something that uh, I, 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 love to, I love to be able to say that, not just to say like, oh, I've preached this many sermons, but like that's quality time. That's quality time in a book of the Bible together. And, and there is, uh, n- none of this time has been wasted time. This is so important for us to know the Gospels well if we were to say that we're Christians, right? And so we're starting this new chapter in chapter 13. Now, I'll say this too, and, and you, I, I alluded to it in the announcements, like some chapters of the Bible are just easier to preach than others. That's, that's just true. I mean, in chapter uh, 12, for example, I preached six sermons out of chapter 12 because so much of what is in chapter 12 is so preachable. Like, it's, it's such uh, preachable content. It puts sermons kind of on a silver platter for you. And so, like, if, if pastors like myself, we get into chapters of the Bible, like chapter 12 and Mark, like, we'll camp out there as long as we possibly can because it's such a preachable chapter of the Bible. I mean, you just take, you just take the previous paragraph, the last paragraph in chapter 12 we studied last week. It's this moment where Jesus is uh, observing people in the temple, and he sees this poor widow giving this huge offering, which isn't much to anybody else, but it was a lot to her. Like, when you study that moment, that's such a preachable moment because everything is so clear. It's so clear as to why Jesus was pointing that moment out. It's so clear as to what he was teaching, and so it's powerful, it's simple. Everybody gets that, cha- that, that paragraph in that chapter. And then you get to, uh, you know, chapter 13, and <laughs> there's a couple of head scratchers in here. And so pastors, uh, they typically don't line up to preach chapter 13 of Mark because, again, not everything in here is crystal clear. And the reason for that is because Jesus is teaching, but he's, he's prophesying. He's talking about events and, and helping his disciples anticipate, his followers anticipate future events that had not happened yet. And so here's, here's kind of why this is so controversial, because today the problem is when scholars and preachers preach through chapter 13, we all know he was talking about future events in his day, but how many of these things are future events still in our day? In other words, you know, some of these, some of these events have taken place, and some of them haven't. And so you, I'm going to preach this in the way that I feel like I understand it best today. And I'm doing that because I'm trying my hardest to remain faithful to the text, and I want to be uh, true uh, to you to the best of my ability. But here's the thing. No matter what, and this goes for any pastor who's preaching chapter 13, no matter what I say, no matter what position I take, you'll be able to go out, search on the internet or go to the Bible bookstore and find a book written by a faithful, wonderful, Jesus-loving scholar who disagrees with my position on this chapter. And I could go to that same bookstore and I could find a good Christian, Jesus-loving, credible scholar that would take the position that I take on this passage of Scripture. And then we could trade books and you could read my book and I could read your book and, and we might both change our minds and then we'd be right back to where we started disagreeing with each other. So, I mean, it's just part of it. But, you know, we don't want to, you know, there's, there's a saying, there's a saying in, in, uh, when it comes to stuff like this, 
the main things are usually the plain things, and the plain things are usually the main things. So we're going to try to start, we're going to try to really stop and, and focus on some of those things, but we'll get a little bit into the weeds today too. But so here's my, my agenda today, is just to make much of God's word, make much of his gospel, to, to preach this text to the best of my ability. And I hope that no matter where you stand after all this, I'll let you be the judge when we study it together. My hope is that we all are able to walk away here today having a better understanding of chapter 13, regardless of where we're at right now. So I may preach this in a way that you've never heard it preached. I may preach this and you're like, no, that's the only way I've ever understood it. That's the way my pastor preached it growing up or whatever it may be. So I, but either way, we can both walk away with a lot of encouragement in this passage, and that's what I really don't want us to miss. So let's remember where we're at. Context, context, context. We're in Holy Week. We're in the part of Mark's gospel that is sharing the, the Passion Week, those week of events leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. He has most recently been in the temple because he's traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. He's been preaching and teaching, and in chapter 12, he was doing a lot of debating, right, because those religious elites that didn't like him, they would come confront him and try to discredit him and argue with him and Jesus just put them in their place. But we're past that moment now. It's either Tuesday or Wednesday of Passion Week. And Jesus right now is leaving the temple. He's done with his public teaching. There's, he's not going to do any more public teaching the rest of this gospel. He, there's a lot of teaching to go, but it's privately to his disciples. So he's leaving the temple, and he's going to the Mount of Olives. There's a lot of olive, tree, olive trees there. You might be surprised to know that. Uh, and he's, he's going to be over here teaching privately to his disciples, and that's why this, this portion of Scripture is called the Olivet Discourse. And he's going to be teaching them about two things in, in, this, in chapter 13. We're only going to take the first 13 verses today, uh, but in this entire chapter, he's talking about two things. He's talking about the destruction of the temple that hasn't happened yet. It's a future event to him. And he's talking about the coming of the Son of Man, his second coming. We just celebrated the first advent of Christ in Christmas time, right? Well, the second coming refers to his second advent, that second arrival, which has not happened yet. And so here's the problem. Here's the trick. You just got to figure out, as we're reading through chapter 13, at what point is he talking about the destruction of the temple, and at what point is he talking about his second coming? And if you can figure that out, you got chapter 13 on lockdown, and you're a better man than I. <laughs> so I'm not here to say that I have everything 100% figured out, uh, but I'll tell you how far I got today, uh, and maybe it's as far as I will ever get. But scholars are going to tell you uh, you're going to interpret this chapter in one of three ways. Either everything Jesus is talking about in chapter 13 is, is prophecy about the destruction of the temple, and if that's the case, all of this prophecy has been fulfilled. Everything in chapter 13, if he's only talking about the destruction of the temple, everything he's getting ready to say has all been fulfilled because the temple was destroyed. If you go to Israel right now, that temple is leveled still to this day. It was destroyed in 70 AD, and there's a mosque there now, and there's, there's no temple, okay? So if Jesus is only talking about the future destruction of the temple, then everything he preaches or prophesies about in chapter 13 it's all been fulfilled. That's one way you can look at it. The second way you can look at it is no. Some scholars will say actually everything he's talking about has to do with his second coming. And none of this prophecy has been fulfilled yet. So if that's the case, then 
it, right? N none of it's been fulfilled. And, and here's your third option, and here's, you know, to put my cards on the table, this is where I stand. Some of what Jesus says in chapter 13 is in reference to the destruction of the temple. And some of what Jesus prophesies in chapter 13 is, is, is about his second coming. And uh, so, so that means that some of this prophecy has been fulfilled and some of it has not been fulfilled. So there you go. Keep that in mind. You, you get that figured out. You got chapter 13 figured out. So here we are. Jesus is leaving the temple with his disciples. Now just imagine being one of the disciples. You just heard Jesus preaching and teaching and debating all day long, confronting all these people. He's making these observations. You're leaving with Jesus right now to the Mount of Olives. Here's, here's what one of the disciples says to Jesus. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. What? What? That would, that would have just blown their minds, right? The, the disciples are just admiring the, the architecture. And all of that architecture was deeply rooted in meaning and taught so many things about who God is. But we're not even going to get into that. They, they would have been awestruck by how amazing this temple is. And this would have been the most impressive structure that they've ever seen in their entire lives. Uh, my my in-laws are here today, and I remember a trip we took together to Chicago once. And we, we went to the—we're going to a Cubs game. This is not about Wrigley Field. You know I'm a Cubs fan. But we went to the Sears Tower while we were there. Now, I, you've seen pictures of the Sears Tower. It's, it's called the Willis Tower now, but I'm like, no, it's not. It's the Sears Tower. And so I'll, I'll never change my mind on that. But anyway, you look at the Sears Tower in a, on a postcard or in a picture or on, an, on the Internet. Oh, it's a cool-looking building. I mean, yeah, it's bigger than the other buildings. It's right on. But when you stand next to the Sears Tower, whoa, it has such a bigger impact on you. Like, wow, that is a crazy big building. But it isn't until you get in the elevator and it goes like Mach 5. I don't know how fast it goes up there, but it's like you get up there really quickly, and you get at the top of the, of the Sears Tower, then you can really appreciate how big the Sears Tower is because when you're looking out the windows, <laughs> it dwarfs any building that's around it. It's just incredible. I mean, the, 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 the architectural feat that took place with the Sears Tower, it's, it's really impressive. And, and, but when you're there, you can't help but just be awestruck by how big that building is. And so this, that would have been something like what the disciples were experiencing every time they would have traveled, or any Jew in Israel, every time they would have traveled to celebrate Passover or any feast or festival throughout the year. Seeing the temple was just this incredibly profound, uh, you know, impressive moment. They were completely awestruck, and so they can't help but comment on it when they're walking with Jesus like, it's been a long day, but like, wow, isn't the, isn't the temple just so beautiful? Isn't it amazing? I mean, the pillars and all the different, you know, areas of the temple, it's just, it's so impressive. And they're commenting on this to Jesus, and what does he say? Oh, yeah, it's all going to burn. Uh, it's going to come crumbling down. There's not going to be one stone on top of another. You guys want to catch some lunch, or, you know, it's like, what? You can't just drop a bomb on them like that without them, like, asking a question about that. That would have blown their minds, like, no, what, what, did, what did he just say? Let's, let's continue here in verses 3 and 4. It says, and as, 
As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they're like, okay, hey, we're in the inner circle. Let's take Jesus aside. Like, when will these things be? What things are they talking about? Well, clearly the destruction of the temple, right? That's just what Jesus said. Look at all these buildings. There will not be one stone left upon another. It's all going to come crumbling down. And then they say, when will these things be? What else could they possibly be talking about other than the destruction of the temple? Right? This is clear. Until you consider all the Gospels. <laughs> Let me muddy the waters a little bit for you. You know, this same exact moment, this is called a Gospel parallel. Anytime one moment is also in another Gospel and in another Gospel, we call those the Gospel parallels. There are these parallel moments. Here we're reading Mark's writings. And Matthew, we read his writings and his perspective. And John, same with him. Luke, same with him. And so, in Matthew's gospel, in this same exact moment, they ask this question, but there's a second part to the question that's not here in Mark. So, you know, Mark or Matthew puts it like this. Tell us when these things will be. Obviously, that's in reference to the destruction of the temple. But then it goes on. There's, a, there's part two of the question. And what will be the sign of your coming at the at the close of the age. You see those two questions there? When will the destruction of the temple be? And then when will the, the coming of the Son of Man be? Two-part question, and it's likely, remember, the disciples are living in the moment. We live outside of this moment. We have the luxury of reading through the Gospels and reading through the Epistles, and we have all of this information that they don't have. And we know, and we've studied it several times at this point, they don't have all the facts. They don't know everything that's going on. They're disagreeing with Jesus half the time when he's talking about his, his uh, upcoming death and resurrection. They're like, what? No, this can't be. You know, there's a lot they don't understand. So as they're getting, slowly getting on board with what Jesus is teaching, it's likely that they think, the destruction of the temple and the coming of the, 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 coming of the Son of Man, the second coming, that, that's all going to be the same event. So it's likely they're asking, when are, when are these things going to happen? When's this one moment when both of these things are going to happen? Now we know, because we're not in the moment and we're 2,000 years down the road, we know these are two different points on the timeline. Because we know that the destruction of the temple has already taken place. So some of what Jesus is talking about, is in reference to the destruction of the temple, and some of what Jesus is talking about, as we'll see in chapter 13, is about his second coming. So here's what they say. So that we can anticipate this, Jesus. You've just blown our minds. What will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? How, how do we prepare for this, Jesus? Can, can you give us some sign? that You've prophesied about this. How will we know when this point in time you're talking about is going to take place? Jesus starts rattling off signs. Here they are. Let's, let's take the first grouping of signs, verses 5 through 8. He says, and, it says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, this first grouping of signs. What's the first sign he says? Many are going to come in my name and say, I am he. Many people are going to get led astray. There's a sign that you know this is about ready to take place, whatever it is that I'm talking about, right? What is he talking about? Is he talking about the destruction of the temple? Or is he talking about the second coming? Well, all right. If, if he's talking about the second coming, is this what we're supposed to look for right now? Is there going to be an intensified season of time in which people are going to say, I'm the Messiah, I'm Jesus reincarnate, reincarnated or something? We literally had a dude here just a, a few years back in Miami. He led a very charismatic church in Miami, Florida, and he had you know thousands of people go into his church, and he claimed that he was Jesus reincarnate. And turns out he wasn't. <laughs> but, you know, so are, are there cracker jacks like this in society today? Uh, well, yeah, it does happen from time to time. You can see it, you know, throughout history, several moments. Or, or was this a sign they were supposed to look for to know that the destruction of the temple was about to happen? See, I kind of think it's that one. And here's why. Whenever you keep reading through the Bible after the Gospels, you see many people rising up saying, I am he. And it's after Jesus has died and resurrected and it's before the temple was destroyed. So we read about it in the Bible, right? When we're reading in the, in the, in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we read in chapter 5, there was a guy named Thaddeus claiming to be somebody. I'm the guy, man. I'm, it's me. He had a huge following. He was executed. Didn't pan out good. Judas the Galilean, he rose up, had a huge following, insurrectionist, and so he, he was another guy. He was executed. These guys didn't, didn't uh, resurrect, unlike, you know, that's very different than Jesus. And there was another guy, Simon Magus, or Simon the Sorcerer, where we read in Acts when we study about him. I always think of him as Simon the Maggot, just because that's easier to remember. <laughs> he was a sor sorcerer. Uh, many people thought he was the Messiah, and he led a lot of people astray. You read in Acts 13 about the, the dude named Bar-Jesus. He was a false prophet. Uh, his name literally means son of a savior. And, and so there, we read about uh, the Egyptian being referenced in Acts 21. And they, they were thinking, maybe Paul, are, are you the Egyptian? No, wait, uh, this is the guy who led thousands of people. This Egyptian led thousands of people uh, in a revolt and he, claiming he was the dude. So when you're reading in the books of Acts, you can make a really strong argument that this prophecy that Jesus says was fulfilled because many came saying, I am he. And they led many people astray and thousands and thousands and thousands of people were slaughtered. So you take your pick. Remember, I'm letting you be the judge today. You decide. Was he talking about the destruction of the temple or was he talking about the second coming? That's all you got to figure out to understand chapter 13. Here's the second sign he said. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Okay, is this a sign for the end of the time? Or is this a sign for the destruction of the temple? Well, okay. You can, uh, you can just, if you're looking at the first century, after Jesus' death and before the destruction of the temple, take your pick. There are, there are conflicts all over the place in recorded history back then. There are so, and, and Rome, 
Thankfully, Rome recorded everything. They, they wrote everything down. We can read this in the history books, right? There was this conflict all over the place, nation against nation. There was wars and, and all over, kingdom against kingdom. There were rumors of wars constantly. And so it could very well be the case that this prophecy has been fulfilled. It was leading up to the destruction of the temple. Or maybe this is a prophecy for the end of time. Now, here's the thing about that, right? Has there ever been a point in time in which there wasn't wars or rumors of wars, <laughs> right? Can you point to anywhere on the, in, the, in, in human history in which like, people were like, hey, there's no wars going on right now. You know, come to think of it, there's not even rumors of wars right now. No, I mean, there's always wars and rumors of wars. There is an absolute certainty tomorrow. You will wake up, you'll check the news, and what will we see? Rumors of wars and wars, all right? We're going to read about Ukraine and Russia, and we're going to read about how many uh, billions of dollars America is sending over there and, and weapons, and we're all thinking the same thing. How many people are going to die before we're more directly involved in that conflict? And so there's a lot of rumors circulating about America being at war with Russia right now, and so we, there's wars and rumors of wars. It's just a reality, but it's always been that way. Point to any other decade in American history, and there's wars or there's rumors of wars, right? And so you can see why you can see why. I'm, I'm stressing these things to make the point. You can see why people debate these things. The third sign Jesus mentioned. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. Okay, so today, a lot of Christians still believe this is what we need to look for to know that we're getting close to the return of Christ. And if you take that position, as a lot of people do, they will go, I know several people, several Christians who go to websites dedicated to tracking earthquakes and famines. You can literally ha go to er uh, websites today that you can see like minute by minute how many earthquakes are taking place on, on the planet Earth, like all day long. You can just watch it all day long and there's there's several earthquakes that happen every single day. And so a lot of Christians will watch these websites trying to anticipate the second coming of Christ. Same thing with famines. You can find that. On, there's, there's websites dedicated to this, tracking famines and things. And so uh, it, people who take that position participate in those sort of things. But was this already fulfilled? Maybe, maybe it's the case, and I think it is. I think Jesus was saying this is a sign to anticipate the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Because again, when you look in scripture, there are a ton of earthquakes mentioned. You see an earthquake at the crucifixion. You see a, an earthquake at the resurrection. You see an earthquake at the prayer meeting in Acts chapter four. You see an earthquake with Paul and Silas in prison. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, if you were a first century reader and you read chapter 13 of Mark, and Jesus said to look for these things, and, and then you read about earthquakes taking place, and then you get to the book of Acts, which would have circulated with the Gospel of Luke, because it was one, one book, right, one, one scroll, and so you would have been reading that, and you say, oh, you got to be anticipating uh, earthquakes and famines, and, and then you're reading about earthquakes and famines taking place in Scripture. And in the first century as well, Remember, Rome recorded everything, and during the reign of, reign of Claudius, there were three known famines in the first century in the, uh, under the reign of Rome. And so, again, if you're a first century reader, it's very reasonable to think, to believe, that they were reading this and saying, hey, these prophecies are being fulfilled right before our eyes. There are earthquakes here. We know of the earthquakes. There's, there's famines going on. Claudius just announced it. There, there, there's... 
our country's in turmoil. And, and here's the most compelling thing. Did you see what Jesus said about these wars and these earthquakes and these famines and these false teachers? What does he say about all of them? He says, this must take place, but the end is not yet. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. The end is not yet. These things that you are to look for, it could be that Jesus is saying it in this way. The end is not yet. These aren't things in reference to the end. These are things that are in reference to the destruction of the temple that you just asked me about. These are two separate things. Okay, he's not done. There's more signs again. You be the judge. He's not done. Let's look at verses 9 through 13. There's a second grouping of signs that they are supposed to look for. Let's consider them together. Verse 9 says this, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when, you, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will, raise against parent, will, will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, here are the signs. Here's this second grouping of signs. Are they in reference to the destruction of the temple or are they in reference to the second coming? The first sign is this. There's going to be major persecution. And so a lot of people, because of this text, again, a lot of Jesus-loving, good Christian people read this text and they think that this is in reference to the second coming of Christ. And so they believe, in, as a result of that, that towards uh, the, uh, towards the end of time when Christ returns, this persecution will ramp up. It will intensify the closer and closer we get to the return of Christ. And so you can see how reasonable that position is because it doesn't feel like leaders, political leaders and, and, and nations are getting friendlier towards what we believe, does it? It doesn't feel like it's getting uh, more Christian around the world politically. It, it feels like there's some persecution ramping up, and, and there's some opposition ramping up against what we believe. And so you can see why they would believe this is a sign we are to look for before the return of Christ. But it could be, and this is the position I take, I'm just telling you so you know where I stand. It could be that this was a sign that first century Christians were to look for to anticipate the destruction of the temple. Again, we studied the book of Acts, didn't we? Man, we spent so many weeks in the book of Acts. We spent 57 weeks. We're only 50 weeks in the mark. We spent 57 weeks in the book of Acts. I lost track of how many times Paul got beat up. Did you? Like he's making three missionary journeys. He's going in the synagogues and they're beating the crap out of him. He's unconscious and they're picking him up off the ground thinking he's dead. I mean, he, he's before all of these leaders and and councils and kings and things like that. It's crazy when you read about the persecution of Christians in the book of Acts. And remember how it even starts with Paul? He's the one persecuting the Christians. He's killing Christians and, and applauding their death. And so you can see then, if you were a first century reader, 
reading what Jesus is saying about the destruction of the temple. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be an intensified persecution of the church. And if you're in the first century and you're a Christian, you are seeing an intensified persecution of the church that would make you think, wow, the destruction of the temple must not be far away. And it wasn't. He also says there in verse 10, and this is where some of you are thinking, oh, we got you now, Pastor. Now we know you're wrong. It says in verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. There's the linchpin. You can't be right now. Has the gospel been proclaimed to all nations, Pastor? Because if it hasn't, this can't be in reference to the destruction of the temple. It has to be in reference to the second coming of Christ at the end of time. Because everybody knows Jesus isn't going to come back until the gospel has been proclaimed to all nations. Well, first of all, let me just say, I want the gospel proclaimed to all nations. I want to participate in that. I want to be a part of that because that is what I want. I want the gospel proclaimed all over the planet Earth so that as many people as possible can hear the gospel and believe. Okay? I'm totally on board with that. a matter of fact, I want all 195 nations. So when I say I want all of the nations of the world to hear the gospel and have the gospel proclaimed there, I mean the entire world, all 195 nations that I had to Google to know that number before I said it in this sermon. But the question is not what do I mean when I say all nations. The question is what did they mean? in their culture and in their time when they wrote the Gospel of Mark. What did they mean when they said all nations? Now, there's a rule of thumb when you're reading through the Bible that's very helpful. Never forget this. Always let Scripture interpret Scripture. We tend to let our cultural context always interpret what we're reading in the Bible, but you're better off to let Scripture interpret Scripture, understand that cultural context and how they used language and what they meant by certain words and phrases, and then understand their intent first before you start using your culture, your culture to interpret these things. So the question is not, what do I mean when I say all nations? The question is, what do they mean? Well, we just, we can go all over Scripture to do this, right? Let's get some help from the Bible. The Bible's ready to help us solve this. We just studied uh, Christmas, the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, right? We had uh, the Raider Balls, we're up here reading it at our Christmas service just last month. It was a special time together. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, let me read to you that first verse that I know you probably know off the top of your head. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. What does he mean, all the world? Did they register all the world? How many Apaches made that list? Right? How many Native Americans were on that list whenever that, did they register the whole world? Is that what Caesar meant, the whole world? No, all, all, all means something different to them, obviously, and we're all on the same page there. Nobody debates this. Christian scholars don't debate this. Of course, when, when they say that, that, a, that a, this, this register, registry went out to all the world, they mean all of the known world, all of the, the known world that Rome has conquered more specifically. That's who took place uh, in, the, in the registry there. And so all the world meant all that Rome had conquered. We all agree about all there, right? In Acts chapter 11, we see this. Uh, again, uh, there's a prophet, a good prophet, not a false prophet, a true prophet named Agabus. 
Remember studying about him? It says that Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. And then it says this took place in the days of Claudius. Remember I referenced Claudius wrote everything down. There was three known famines. And, and Agabus actually prophesied about one of these before it happened. And, and so when Luke is writing that, he says, that, yeah, Agabus told us about this. This proves he is a true prophet. But did it take place in all of the world? No, it took place under the reign of Claudius, it says, so that they know this is all of Rome suffered this famine, not literally all of the planet Earth. And so we could go on and on and on here. We could spend a lot of time going over every occasion we could, uh, that, that we see all in the text. And you could go to Acts 24, uh, verse 5. You could go to Colossians 1, 5, and 6. You could go to Romans 1, verse 8. And, and, and you could just go and look at every one of these alls, and we would have an argument just like what I just presented to you, that we all are in agreement. And when I say all, I mean all. That all doesn't always mean all. The question when you read the word all in Scripture is, what is the scope of all? Well, when, when it says that first the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations, if we take that phrase in the terms that they typically used that phrase, then before the, the destruction of the temple, the gospel was proclaimed to all the nations. And so it could very well be that this is one of the signs. Has the gospel been proclaimed to all the nations? Because if so, the, the, the temple is about to be destroyed. And then this first century reader is reading through the book of Acts. Wow, these three missionary journeys going all, all to, the, to all the nations. The gospel is being proclaimed everywhere to all of the nations. It's right here in the text. This is how I understand it as a, a first century Greek human being. So the, the, the temple must, the temple destruction must be right around the corner. So you can see, again, you be the judge. This is the debate. This is what Christians disagree on. So I think, this is where I stand. I think in my study and where I'm at and the way I understand the Bible is that all, all of these 13 verses so far in chapter 13 are all prophecy, prophecy regarding the destruction of the temple. These are the things that Christians were to look for to anticipate when that temple was going to be destroyed. This is what, whenever the disciples went on those missionary journeys, these are the type of things they would share with people and teach them about what Jesus said. They would say, hey, he prophesied about the destruction of the temple, and he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be people that say that they're the Messiah. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes, and, and all of these things have happened. It must be around the corner. And then in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. And so those first 13 verses, at least those first 13 verses, I think, were fulfilled. Jesus was right. Those things did happen before the destruction of the temple. And we have the book of Luke and Acts and things like that to confirm these things. So regardless of what you think, some of you may be on board with what I'm saying. Some of you may be mm, on the fence. Some of you not so much. But you know what? The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, right? Let's not get lost in the weeds and lose out on this, th this encouragement that we are meant to feel just like what those first century readers were meant to feel. Jesus is talking about, uh, pr he's prophesying, he's talking about the destruction of the temple and end times. He, and these things ruffle our feathers and we get distracted by those things. And every time I preach over something like this, it really ruffles some feathers 
and that's okay. I mean, it's, it's okay. We're not going to agree on every last little thing. That's just part of life, and I've learned to accept it, and we can still high-five each other and say praise the Lord at the end of this. I, I'll tell you this, though. If you read something like this and you start to get so lost in the debates with Christians that you're always quarreling about it, you're always fighting about it, it makes you uneasy, it makes your blood pressure rise, you are missing the forest for the trees. You're getting lost in the weeds in an, unhealthy, in an unhealthy way. You need to stop yourself before you wreck yourself, as they say, right? Stop and think. Jesus is trying to, he's the great shepherd trying to shepherd his people, and he's trying to shepherd us right now with this text. He wants them in the midst of chaos to be able to lie down in green pastures and fear no evil, right? That's what he does. That's who he is. Did you hear in chapter 13 five things that he said to them? Listen to this. He says, he says to encourage them, to prepare them, just like he's trying to prepare us. See that no one leads you astray. That was in verse 5. Verse 7, do not be alarmed. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 10, do not be anxious. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is shepherding and preparing his followers so that they will endure. So when we, when we study about how he was shepherding them and preparing them in a, to, to walk through a time of chaos, like, it's inspiring. It's inspiring, and it's meant to inspire us in such a way that we would feel the peace that they get to feel in that moment. So that when life does get crazy, Jesus is talking about all of these crazy, life-changing things that are about ready to take place in their life. And he's trying to shepherd them so that as they walk through that fire, they would not be alarmed. So as they walk through those hard times, they're not going to be anxious. As they walk through those hard times, they're not going to get led astray by all these myths and false teachings and things like that. And the same is true for us. Like you and I, when we study Scripture, when we practice this faith, we are never promised that we are going to, if we become Christians, suddenly be whisked away from any problem in life or from any you know, a bad season that we may be going through or hard times that we're facing. Rather, what we see in the Christian religion and how, this, how Scripture ministers to us as we walk through these difficult times is that your faith will endure by being shepherded by the teachings of Christ. This is to strengthen our faith, not to spare us from every bad thing that's going to take place in, the, in our life, but it's to strengthen our faith in a way that we can endure Every difficult time, every hard time, every chaotic time, every time that's confusing and you don't know what's going on or you don't know what's about to happen next or you can't anticipate the future and you're all full of anxiety and worry and, and doubt. And, and, and then we remember, wait, 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 wait. Hold up. Jesus said the most significantly life-changing, life-altering moments in the, in the future of the disciples that they were getting ready to experience. He says to them, don't be alarmed. Why? Because God is sovereign. All of this falls under his providence. All of this chaos, even the evil in this world, it falls under his sovereignty. Nothing can happen outside of his all-powerful will. And we can rest in that. And so as we try to make sense of chapter 13, and if we're, if we're starting to get worked up, man, you're reading it wrong. No matter how you see the, the, no matter what you see this talking about, what event, you're reading it wrong if you're getting worked up. You're reading it right if this brings you peace. Isn't it, great, isn't it a great truth to understand that regardless of what lies ahead of us and however it unfolds, 
he's in control? Isn't it such a joy to know that all of this falls under his providence? You know, in John's gospel, and I'll leave you with this uh, passage that uh, Jesus says to his disciples. In John's gospel, in the same frame of time, he records Jesus saying this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That's why he's saying it. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's a guarantee. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What a joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for moments like chapter 13. I'm so grateful for a church that's willing to get into some of the weeds, but still focus on the main things. When we get caught up in the chaos and the trouble and tribulation of this world, Lord, we get so distracted so easily. It's, we're so fickle at times when it comes to our faith. We, we're so prone to, to wander and to listen to wrong teaching. We're, we're prone to get caught up in, in trying to anticipate every single move and try to control the future. And if we can't control the future, we're full of anxiety and worry and doubt and depression and everything else, Lord, but you tell us no. You correct us by saying no. Don't be led astray. Don't be anxious. Don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. Everything falls under my reign. And Lord, that is a joy. Thank you for being honest with us to tell us that we are going to be in tribulation. And thank you for the promise that you have overcome this world and we have a hope to live with in the midst of that chaos and a joy to look forward to at your second return. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Mm -hmm.